Hello everyone and welcome to the future space. Today with us we have Janet Ivey. She's the creator and CEO of Janet's Planet. She's the current president of Explore Mars. She's an award-winning space science educator, second-round citizen astronaut candidate for Space for Humanity, a NASA JPL Solar System ambassador, and she's a self-appointed guardian and shepherd shepherdess of the next generation of space explorers. Janet, welcome to the future of space. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. It's so nice to have you. You and I, we've had previous space chat and we've connected obviously on our love of the youth and their sense of creativity and imagination, their desire to explore the world. Um, Tell us a little bit about your journey from where you started and where you are now being this dedicated space educator with the children. You know, it's interesting. It started 30 years ago. I can pinpoint it to an actual date, May 18th, 1992. I had finished my degree at Belmont University and walked into a rehearsal hall where I was going to be the adult uh, uh, with these kids performing all summer at a theme park. Uh, and that was called the Opryland Kids Club. And again, back then I thought it was just gonna be music and theater. I love space and science from a very young age, uh, from about 10, I had a fabulous fifth grade teacher. But 30 years ago in May, I walked in and I was like, wow, Working with kids is pretty radical. I like this job. And during that five-year stint that I spent working with kids, performing for kids, uh, I knew that I was like, there's something here that I really like feels good down deep. And when that end of that experience was happening, I looked around, I thought, how can I continue this? And at the time there was Bill Nye, the science guy, and there was Beekman's World, but you couldn't really point to like, well, where are the girls? Where are the girl scientists? Where are the girls there? And I thought, hmm, I'll plant my flag there. And so Janet's Planet was really born in that moment of performing with and for kids. And I wouldn't recommend to anybody my particular business plan. Did I have one? That's the real question. It's just that I kept following it much like an artist does. I know, Daniel, you know all about this. You've kind yep. of follow wherever those pathways lead. And I found my way to a producer who worked for local public television. I helped her. She said, what is it that you want to do? We ended up being able to produce just some short form content, little interstitials that would air at the top of the hour, the bottom of the hour. Then about a third or you know more of the PBS stations in the US started carrying Janet's Planet. Then we expanded to start touring and in 2020, I wouldn't have, if you would have said to me, Daniel, Janet, you know, you should really go and take this thing online and teach virtually. I'd been like, I don't really want to do that. But uh, 2020 being what it was, I sort of had this epiphany one afternoon. I need to be with some kids. So very naively, we put that up. And for the last couple of years, we've reached over 10,000 kids 
virtually with a quarter million views of some of our content. And I never would have thought that. So while I don't always recommend doing it kind of like around the mulberry bush, up the hill, down again and back again, it certainly led me to all of these iterations of what Janet's Planet is currently. Uh, but yeah, it all started 30 years ago. Maybe, maybe I would recommend that uh, Janet's Planet becomes Janet's Universe. <laughs> might, might have started as a little planet, but it seems to me that now it's, it has grown into a solar system with Janet at the center radiating through the... Uh, <laughs> through the you know what? I, I'm going to use that. I in a, in a recent interview, somebody said, well, who is Janet of Janet's planet? And I was like, I'm a whole galaxy of things, right? Uh, it's a little bit, you know, theatrical performance. It's a little of camps. It's online teaching. It's, uh, you know, mentor and cheerleader for that next generation. So maybe that's what I should also encourage anybody who's listening. We humans, we're not monolithic. If you nope. love your art and you love your science, let them work in concert with one another and let that be that unique, beautiful, amazing thing that you bring, that nobody else can do it in the way that you do. But yeah, go ahead, everybody. You, Daniel, are a galaxy of things yourself, you whole solar system, you. So, because yeah. you're a photographer and an educator and mentor, all these things. So maybe that's the message that we have to break out of that those boxes that we like to, the world loves boxes, because then we can go, oh, I get it. I think when we're a, an entire galaxy, they're like, what is happening? Well, yeah, it's definitely much harder. And, and we cannot blame for that. The, we can blame anyone for that desire to box because that's how we're able to kind of move through the world and not having to reassess everything. Right. You know, knowing knowing the job that you do, where you come from, is able to give me a sense of story and puts you in a place of safety or or um, not safe. But for artists, often we tend to kind of like go outside that box, and for the the world around us, it it's more challenging to then kind of like oh this is what you do. No, 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 this is not just what I do. I do this and I do that. But I, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword for artists. I, I, it's, a, it's a pleasure, but it's at the same time, it's a burden because we, it's our responsibility as artists to be outside of that box. But at the same time, it's a, you know, it's a burden that we carry. Janet, I want to start with asking you three words that describe space for you? I thought about this a lot. And for me, it is peace, birth, and expansion. Expansion for sure, birth and peace. Absolutely. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, conflicting ideas right now about and uh, humans going to space some people think it's at the expense of our own presence of the planet and our own behavior with the planet and some others think that no it's actually for the benefit from your perspective what are the best the best reasons for 
humans to go into planet and, and, and what will it do to the planet? For me, this is one thing that I do a lot of talking about, especially with students, because even fifth graders will question the validity and why are we going to spend all of this money uh, and when we should be maybe pouring these resources into other things. But I think it's just so important that we remind everybody, Daniel, that it's like we are growing in amazing technology and expertise. So many of the things that we currently enjoy today, whether that's GPS in our phone or weather satellites that can give us like more accurate and better predictions than ever about storms and you know really dire weather patterns that are happening. These are all based in space research and the things that have happened because of the space industry. And so as we go forward in time, we're looking at things from orbital farms, like, you know, growing food and bio, uh, cellular bioreactors. It's like we can even look to science fiction and go when Star Trek was 3D printing food. There is now a, a, a restaurant called Origins of Food that pretty much from their plates to their food, it's all 3D printed. So while it, yes, it's, it's incredible kinds of money, but we also benefit the day that we can figure out a way to protect humans in a spacesuit from, you know, solar radiation, we may just have solved cancer back here on Earth. The day that we are able to grow a full crop of things for astronauts and researchers to live on the moon or Mars, we may just have solved food scarcity back here on Earth. So I am probably in that camp that says we go for the benefit of all, because whether it was Edgar Mitchell or any of these people looking back at that blue ball, every astronaut talks about having that overview effect where the lines were blurred, wars seemed petty. You wanted to, Edgar Mitchell said he wanted to grab politicians by the neck and go, look at there, take a look there. Because in this world of human connectedness, whatever we do ought, in my opinion, we ought to seek to go, how does this action benefit the rest of my community. One of the things that I love telling kids is, you know what, start locally. What can you do in your very own backyard that can benefit your community? And yep. then as that is, can it you know, benefit larger? But I just think that we have too many technologies that we currently take for granted and rely heavily upon that were born or birthed in in space and because of this great endeavor. So that's my hope that we could keep some idea that we're going to space for peaceful purposes for the benefit of all. And if we learn how, is it possible, Daniel, here's a question I have for you. Do you think, and, and maybe I'm naive in believing this, I keep thinking if the world were to see us go as people from all nations, and then really begin to thrive, having this first time experience as a whole, could they go, you know what, if they can all get along, what's the problem here? I mean, what do you think? Is like, is it possible that we can go together and watch that and be transformed? I think that somehow we've been kind of doing a decent job and that's the reason why we've lived in the most kind of safe, era in the human story I mean, the the 
problem, the issue that we have and we struggle with is, and I've written about that, is conflict is actually built within nature. Mm -hmm. it's, it's because you have differences and because we also have awareness and through our sense of consciousness and awareness, there's also pain and suffering. And that's the package that comes with it. Either we become all robots and we can all live in one line without any sense of going outside of that line, or we live with this understanding that life was never meant to be perfect nor fair, because then we would be extremely arrogant and awful people to be with. The suffering and then the un injustice and the unfairness actually create the sense also of empathy and understanding that it is together through that suffering that we really come together. It's not to encourage and to let suffering go freely, but to understand their power of connection and, and humanity. Um, I always say that suffering is really the great equalizer of the world. Not everybody is rich, not everybody is, not everybody is successful, not everybody is healthy, but every single person from the billionaire to the person in the ditch, everybody has suffered. So it's, it's for me, there's like when I go into nature, I recognize those dynamics and I recognize how evolution has created in its foundation these elements of tension, disruption, creation and, and um, creation and destructions because it is the only assurance to move forward. From the perspective of nature, it doesn't want perfection. Where do you go from perfection? You go nowhere. You want to have always this sense of like, I cannot take things for granted. And every time that you think that you've opened the door so that you can relax, now there's a new door that opens in these new situations. So for me, it's always been extremely important, even dealing with kids or with adults that I'm, that I'm uh, consulting. It's not trying to take away the challenges and the struggles, but to give ourselves the tools so that we can negotiate with them and turn them into opportunities for growth or expansion. And that, the, going to the moon or Mars is going yeah. to present enough of its own kind of problems and challenges. So that, that I think is that where the suffering and the challenges are going to naturally come and yeah. the survival of the team and the survival of the unit and the crew going together is going to depend on them learning yeah. how to supersede any conflict or differences and work toward the goal of survival. So I, I still think that there's a, a ton of potentiality for Absolutely. the problems and challenges that will be faced, whether that's the you know oxidizer or the oxygenator goes awry, or the water source isn't pure mm -hmm. enough, or the dust storms are, you know, impeding any kind of research and creating depression. So it, it brings up all of these great questions. A lot of times though, I just finished this project with 200 fifth graders and they were all building their lunar bases and they had really done their homework. It was really impressive to watch them all explain why they had built it. and. They all, it was very interesting, most all of them had put something in their habitat that reminded them of home. And I was no like, way. oh, do you think that 
do you think and I it, you know it's funny how those ideas like you go did somebody say that and then that traveled throughout the fifth grade thing but when I would ask them they're like well you know it's like and they also had put schools in there I said so you're going to put a school there they're like well we'll want to know where we came from and we'll need to keep a record of like what's going on so whomever follows us will know how it was those first days so Again, that's why my hope is in these younger kids because they have, they have such a fresh perspective and view of how the world can work. Absolutely, and you know, earlier you were talking about like going to space will expand our consciousness, I mean, and obviously spending money. But the same parallel can be made when we're a teenager or we get into our twenties. Financially, it would make more sense to just stay home and live under one roof and just you know keep all this money and and not do these uh, the expense of of going in and make a new life but the reality is that we all have to step out of that house at some point and go make expand our horizon create those those uh, those experiences that will elevate who we are and the, the the story of the human you know the human stories and it, and that is exactly what's going to happen as we go into space. It's not really a question of money. It's a question of we're at that point now where we can elevate the human story to something that is more than just the planet. I always think of the words of Brian Greene. He wrote I forget which book. Maybe it was The Fabric of the Cosmos, where it's like he really was encouraging us all to sort of embrace space and science as the grandest adventure of all right you're talking about when again it would be wise just hang out stay with your parents save the money but built into us all is this desire to make our mark to go out and see what can be discovered what can we actually do and so i think i think that switch in our heads to be like the pursuit of this really is that grand adventure. I mean, there's a great contest going on right now with hashtag unfold the universe related to the James Webb Space Telescope where you as a student uh, can take a picture or draw a picture or create a diorama or anything that you wanna do uh, upload it, have your grown-ups upload it to social and hashtag it with unfold the universe because we're just a couple, three months away from the James Webb revealing what they're seeing for that first time. And I think it's been remarkable if you've had a chance, just kind of like Google hashtag unfold the universe and it's beautiful art that these students are creating. But I even think that this is going to be a transformative moment when the James Webb reveals these first ever images from the very first galaxies that would be forming. Are we going to have theories that we have accepted as truth uh, for decades be upended by something that is now discovered by the James Webb? Yeah. I heard this lovely cosmologist out of the UK uh, express one time to a grand audience of people. She goes, I've always wondered, perhaps, and I have to do it in her voice, otherwise I forget the quote, but she's like, I've always wondered, perhaps, maybe it wasn't such a big bang as it was a big breath. And the whole room just grew quiet and we're like, ah, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I don't know what this is going to show us or reveal, 
or what we may learn and some new discovery. Um, I just think it's so important that we remind ourselves that so much of what we have to be true was born somewhat out of absurd thoughts. We can look back mm -hmm. in science fiction. Um, even Einstein said, if your idea is not absurd enough, then mm -hmm. there is no hope for it. Yeah. And so Nikola Tesla in 1909 told the New York Times that one day we would be carrying around our very own apparatus that could transmit messages wirelessly. Yeah. I mean, he's forecasting cell phones and internet before even the home phone was ubiquitous. Uh, you have in you know 2001 Space Odyssey and uh, they're talking about their news pads and neither Arthur C. Clarke or Stanley Kubrick lived to see the iPad released in 2010. So I think there's some blend of leaving space as you, <laughs> leaving space as it were for the audaciousness of ideas that could propel us forward mm -hmm. and then opening ourselves up to that whatever we could think, create or imagine today might be great science tomorrow, 10 years from now, 400 years from now, mm -hmm. but that that's the challenge, that's the grand adventure, that's the invitation, right? Yeah. What can you create that could benefit all of humanity? And there's something to be said about Tesla and his time, you know, in the 1900s, Edison was at the same time, Tesla um, during that time, the Wright brothers trying to, you know, to fly. And anyone back in those days, I'm pretty sure said or could have said, it's absolutely pointless to waste that kind of genius on trying to power the world or going into the sky when we have diseases and we have so many cultural and societal issues. What a waste of time. But in reality, the world that they built, the vision of the future that they created led to most of the problems actually being being taken, uh, taken care of. And that's also what, you know, it's going to go to space. Going to space will give us a sense of scarcity of the resources, technologies that will you know, come down and an increase of awareness. So Janet, a couple of things that I want us to talk about. You sent me some topics to go over and one of them was space is the gateway to all STEM subjects. Can you share with the audience what you mean by that? Here's what I have found when when I started out thinking about Janet's planet and being a female, what I wanted to do is I wanted to be that female in science. And I thought, okay, what kind of science? And then I thought, aha, space. Because there's something, right, that it's like you look up, we, we marvel at the stars, we wonder what's up there, we wonder if there's anybody else out there, any kind of life that we might someday communicate with. And probably my reasoning for making Janet's planet this idea of looking out at space only to also turn inward and look back at the blue ball and ourselves is that once you tell a kid that the chances of them being them is like one in 400 quadrillion and that they are a thermodynamic miracle and that we're related to each other biologically to the earth chemically to the universe atomically that you are made from the very same elements that exist in the hearts of stars you start to go, whoa, Carl Sagan, we are star stuff. Yeah. And at that moment, you will see a kid go, whoa, 
I'm super okay. I'm part of something grand. And at that moment, then you can encourage them, hey, let's begin to think about what is deep inside you. You're like this beautiful nebula that is this nursery of stars and planets. So this beautiful nebula that you are as a human, what is down deep there within you that is beginning to spin and heat up and that needs to be blasted out for all the world to see? And you'll see them go, well, I've always thought about, and they'll give you a great answer. So for me, STEM is really that gateway. It is that doorway. I mean, space is really that gateway or that doorway that if you open it wide enough, explain to them just how super connected and star stuff they are, then you can begin to point them in, hey, how about biology? Hey, how about engineering? Hey, how about astronomy? And it creates this moment that it's like, you know, it can sound boring, dull, or white jacketed or something like that. But if we give them a moment of wonder and we ex have to the, introduce them to that wonder, then that next step as they pursue things that, you know, are curious to them, kind of like you see them following paths to a STEM career that otherwise might, that door might have stayed shut. But that's why I think space is that beautiful gateway to the STEM subjects because it's full of wonder and awe and that breathtaking feeling of that interconnectedness of all things. So that's at least my, my thesis. <laughs> now, earlier you mentioned about how women were not really present in that world of STEM and space. And you took, you became a personality. And in those 30 years, how, how has been the evolution of the pre presence of the woman spirits, both within, in your own um, generation, but also in the children? You know, it's interesting you ask this because I, back in 2020, we released the first book in my unsung genius series it's like we now have two ones on uh daring to dig mary anning fossil hunter and we just released one on wally funk aviator extraordinaire and the whole series is designed to give women a voice where we may not have ever heard of their genius before so to be fair to the many women who came before, who were the human computers, who were doing brilliant work uh, in science and in space, I think the trouble was is that we, they just didn't have that much of an outlet. Or if you were asked, I mean, if I ask you right now, Daniel, name me a famous female in science, who do you name? Curry, that's the first name that comes to mind. It's the first name that comes to everybody's mind. Right? But we're, we don't name other people, you know? It's like, do you know Grace Hopper? Do you know Nancy Grace Roman? Do you know? And so therein, for me, lies the issue. It's not that women haven't been doing great science. It's just that we haven't known their stories. Yeah. But I think in the last 30 years, what is definitely changed is that you know, here I am a female and a president of a, a nonprofit organization that is advocating for the human presence on Mars. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, that would most 
most likely belong to a, a male per, yeah. per chance. Um, but I also see you've seen it with with NASA and the first ever mission operations manager was Alice Bowman for New Horizons. Yeah. New Horizons had the most female principal investigators of any NASA yeah. mission prior. I think, again, as you've talked about, pain and suffering and evolution only ever happens after people are like, enough, it is our time. And also that's what happened. Another thing that I've seen in the last couple of years is that as we push for inclusivity and diversity and the demand for equity and equality, we're seeing so many beautiful, diverse people of color. You're like, whoa, I didn't even know your name. There's the beautiful Vanessa Wykey that's down and yep. she is leading the charge at Johnson Space Center. I met her a few years back at Explore Mars and I had to do a Zoom call with a ton of students and she says, where are you? headed. I said, oh, I said, I'll join you in a moment. I've got to go talk to some students. She goes, I'll come with you. And so it's like, I know her personally to love education. And again, what this does is when people can see people who look like them, representation matters so very much. So whether it's a female or a person of color, it just, all of a sudden it goes, this is possible for me now that I'm seeing this. So I've seen the, again, back to the door analogy, I've seen that really being flung wider and wider open. There's still work to do, and there's still so many stories to tell uh, about the women who have gone largely unsung, but I think it's time to kind of tout those fantastic people and go, hey, did you know, and enlighten everybody about that. But it's definitely changing and all for the better, and a lot of times, I have more girls in my classes than I do have uh, young men. So girls are finally turning on to the fact that, whoa, not just for the fellas. So hopefully that will st stay around. Well, diversity is, you know, built also within nature. Systems that thrive actually are diverse because that's one of the ways that a system is able to negotiate with change and unforeseen challenges. If it's a if it's a monoculture, it might be great to produce one single thing, but it becomes extremely vulnerable to everything around it. So diversity is always a strategy to kind of make sure that it is robust and resilient. So for our own culture, having this resiliency this through diversity is you know a natural way to move forward. Absolutely, and and it's happening. It, you know probably much more slowly than any of us would like, but I'm, I'm delighted to see that it is happening and, and cheer for everyone who's pushing that forward. Yeah. Change, change takes time. We have, you know, living in the world of today, we're like impatient and instant gratification. <laughs> we want things to happen really quickly, but in, in reality, change is you know is challenging and takes time i think we have to remember that just 50 years ago this was a total different world um, oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> and it's like they were like hey honey what's for dinner yeah <laughs> i don't know DoorDash. you know now we can say that yeah i don't know what are you fixing uh and uh yeah so so many things have changed even from when i think about the world that my grandmother grew up in or my yeah. mom even um 
and the opportunities that I have had. And I think about, you know, my grandchildren and, you know, great nieces of what they will ultimately have opportunities to. I get really excited for them. It's super exciting. Mm -hmm. Now, you're, I think, involved or um, connected with Artemis One, which is going to be the follow up to Apollo. And for the ones who don't know, Artemis is actually named to a Greek goddess. You want to explain a little bit more? Yeah, so it's really exciting. It's like the vice president of Explore Mars. His name is Joe Cassidy, a fantastic human with over 30 patents for rockets and rocket propulsion. Just a genius of a guy went to Purdue. I am delighted to call him friend. And so what most people don't know is that Apollo had a twin. Her name was Artemis, goddess of the moon. And so you'll hear many people who eventually became astronauts or worked for NASA or have done incredible research, they all had their Apollo moment where they saw, you know, Buzz, on, uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. And so by 2025, crossing my fingers, that's, that's what we're hoping for, this generation is going to have their Artemis moment where you're going to see the first female take footsteps on the moon because 12 guys have walked on the moon, no ladies, so it's time for a female to do that. And Artemis 1, it will be uncrewed and it will be tested here probably, hopefully no later than May. And once this is successful with the largest, most you know, powerful rocket ever built with four RS-25s. I only know that because of Joe. When that blasts off and is successful and it tests well, the next mission will begin to put humans on there. And much like the Apollo missions, there'll be an orbit around the moon to make sure everything is in is ready to go. And then shortly, uh, the Artemis one, two, three, four two, three, four, five, uh, we will have humans returning to the moon. And the goal is in, in the Artemis mission is to not just go have a visit, pick up a few things and come back. The goal is to figure out a way, how can we build the gateway that will be kind of like the orbiting space station where, where it'll be open source, where multiple nations can dock, go down to the surface and begin to build a real lunar base and village where we can do research. You know, it's like there's, the moon has a lot of resources. If we can figure out a way to harness helium-3 and somehow bring that back to Earth, we've got clean clean fusion energy, potentially. So lots of things. And then, then that gets into an entirely different possibility is space law, who owns it and who benefits from it, right? So <laughs> with every good thing, there's a checks and balance Mm -hmm. for how we will uh, divvy up those resources. But it's a very exciting time. Commercial space has shown us that space is for everybody, I mm -hmm. think. And, and when we go back to the moon to stay and do so sustainably, it's going to be with multiple international partners. Uh, it's just too expensive to do it in only one country. So again, I think there's going to be some beautiful um, international collaborations that it will also bring about some beautiful actions for humanity. I think that's one of the biggest lessons of James Webb Telescope is whatever discovery that comes through this incredible piece of engineer is a result of a collaboration of 
so many countries, long-term investment, visions after vision. And this is really, I guess, the essence of these big projects and these big endeavors of pushing the boundaries. They really are an opportunity for people to come together from different nations. Oh, when I watched it early on Christmas morning and it's blasting off from, you know, French Guyana and you're hearing the countdown in French and then, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's so lovely and you're watching, you know, again, all of these people celebrate and you've got European Space Agency, Australian Space Agency, Canadian Space yeah. Agency, the U.S. and who would ever think of blasting an Ariane space rocket from from there? And so, again, that that kind of partnerships. And I I know the if you anybody out there wants to read about this, it's called the Artemis Accords, based somewhat in the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. The Artemis Accords and many nations have signed it already. There's still some powerhouses that haven't as of yet, but it's a good document for how we might behave. Say, uh, if JAXA, the Japan, uh, Japanese Space Agency, yep. needs help, then the agreement in the Artemis Accords is that to the best of our ability, uh, we will come to their aid, and or any other country that could would come to the aid of their astronauts or the aid of their uh, particular you know, lunar base or something. So that's a great document and all you have to do is Google Artemis Accords. But, you know, they're, these, again, and when you think about the possibility of that, then you start thinking about, well, what kinds of innovations are gonna be needed for the moon? Well, Nokia already has the contract to put the first ever 5G Wi-Fi on the moon. And I think that contract or that happened back in 2018 or 2019. And yeah, so so again, if we figure out how to have that, then maybe internet will improve here on Earth. I don't know. It's like, do you know what I mean? I, that those are the things that excite me about yep. the things that are possible. You know, I was mentioning Scott Bryson with Orbital Farms and cellular bioreactors. Mm -hmm. There's also another company called MatterShift that is basically figuring out how to make these nanotubes like literally atom to atom like we're talking molecular manufacturing which again you can look back at star trek and there there's a lot of like was a crazy science fiction idea inside star trek about you know like assembling things at the molecular level and now this company matter shift is is bringing it to life so yeah i think that's where I would like to point everybody's attention to that, yes, the world has problems and it sounds like we'll always have these points of conflict and opportunities for us to figure out how to be more human and humane to one another. But as we venture out, the audaciousness of invention and innovation is so captivating mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. And something that again, if you're needing a reason to go, why did I get up this morning? <laughs> Let it be that, that there's still a world, a universe even of possibilities waiting to be discovered, invented and explored. And yeah. hopefully that gets someone out there excited about what's possible. Absolutely. I was, uh, I was having a conversation the other day and I, and I kind of came up with the, a question and I turn, I turn it into a LinkedIn poll, but I want to ask you, I was looking up in the moon 
and I was envisioning the day where we actually see specks of light, these light dots on the moon at night because there's a human presence on the moon. And I was, I found myself like looking forward for that moment. Well, a lot of people are like, absolutely no, we don't want to see the, you know, the moon with like lights. But for me, it represents this, this beacon of achievement that from earth, you look up at night and now you see the humans that are on moon on, on a permanent basis. And I, I'm really looking forward that day. Do you, are you, are you in the same boat? Do you look forward looking up and seeing lights on the moon? I'm with you. You know, the Apollo astronauts actually left uh, these kinds of interesting laser, I, I don't remember how, I, I'm losing the word now for it, but they basically left these kinds of shields on the moon that the Earth can bounce a laser light back from. So it was kind of, you know, these interesting ways to do, you know, laser communications and to kind of see light bouncing there. So I even go, I mean, Let's all think about that kid's book, Good Night Moon. Like to see the lights up there or to see them dim. And it's like, and give a wish to the people of the moon. Uh, that gets exciting to me. But also yeah. this idea of what if they could send us little, you know, kind of flares of messages and say hi. I mean, how cool would that be to coordinate a, like a, you know, a, a global thing like tonight, look up at the moon, the people of the moon are sending us a message. And you know, whether it's uh, in old analog and some kind of like Morse code, or we get some kind of shimmering thing. I think it would just, again, be connection relationship. And we source that meaning out of those things, right? That yeah. we would be looking up at something that 50, years ago, a hundred years ago, we were only potentially seeing or thinking about it in a fanciful or fantastical way, but now it's real. Then we're looking at possibility in the face and putting death to some kind of impossible things that are out there. I'm with you. I want to, I want to like look up at the moon, see some lights on and then bid it good night. I think that's kind of sweet. You were talking and I was in my mind envisioning this commercial and I was, and it would be like a Coke commercial. A kid is on the moon looking out the window and he sees this light blinking, you know, on earth, on the moon. And it turns out there's another kid on the planet or on the moon and both of them start to communicate. Yeah. Until, until years later or, you know, some time later, they finally meet and then they share, obviously, a Coke. But this, this, <laughs> this, this reality, maybe it would be like with the new Coke Starlight, Coke is getting into... Right. The- because it is apparently they're going, what does it taste like? And it's going to taste mm-hmm. like raspberries because we know that ethyl, is it ethyl fomate or formate? I always forget if there's an R in there. I know, sorry, my chemistry folks out there, ethylfomate. <laughs> it's what, um, it, we know that that exists in the heart of our universe. And ethylfomate is what makes raspberries taste like raspberries. They, it's also an ingredient in rum. So either uh, the new Coke tastes like raspberries or a bit of rum. But yeah, that's what the center of the universe tastes like. So, or, so that's the next commercial for, for Starlight. It would be a little kid on Earth and a little kid on the moon. 
and they start to communicate via Morse code and then cut to a scene where both of them are like on the, on the moon. The one from Earth is going to the moon to do, you know, kind of tour it, like go to the moon space park. They meet up there. They're on the lunar roller coaster having a Coke. All right. Daniel, you just got a sponsor, Coca-Cola. We just wrote the spot for you. Reach out to the email. (laughs) Reach out to the email. Now, Janet, I want to go back to, uh, well, we haven't left the kids, but tell me the vision that the kids now have when we talk about the moon and Mars. Like, is it, is it still like really science fiction out of this world, like something totally impossible or it's, they already have the awareness that we're talking about a future that we're building currently. I think it's a couple of things. If it's a kid who's been loving space for a long time, they're set, it's real, it's happening, and that's going to be their future. When I go into areas that maybe haven't had an experience or an opportunity to hear somebody speak about the possibilities of space, you'll get some kids going, what? Nah. But I think it's all about opportunity and exposure. And that's really kind of my mission as Janet's Planet is to offer this possibility to as many kids as possible, getting them thinking about and really understanding that, yeah, what I'm telling you does sound a bit like science fiction, but it's happening and it will happen in your lifetime, in your children's children's lifetime. And so get prepared because you know, there've been plenty of reports that say in the next 20 to 30 years, the space industry, space economy is gonna be worth a trillion dollars. And so really the world, the moon, Mars is their oyster. So I find it, it's like if I walk into a school and space and you know, you've got some of these kids who've loved it for a long time, they will automatically embrace it and go, of course this is happening. The exciting thing for me is when I go into either, you know, rural areas or inner city areas that haven't had as much exposure to these topics and I start sharing and they start getting excited about that possibility. That I think is when we begin to create that kind of space and science literacy for our kids, living on the moon, living on Mars, mining on asteroids becomes an ever more reality becomes ever more a reality. Now, being mindful of your time, um, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you have a busy schedule with the kids. Do you want to share with the audience what is coming up both for Janus Planet and also for Explore Mars, which you're, uh, you're currently the president? Thank you for allowing me to tout that. Coming up May 17th through 19th, 2022, we're finally meeting in person in DC. Uh, again, we'll, we'll have an online component, so if you can't travel, we totally understand, but we are having our Human to Mars conference May 17th through 19th. You can check it out online. Registration is currently open at exploremars.org. As far as Janet's Planet, I'll be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in March doing my Tour of the Solar System show at a performing Broward Performing Arts Center down there. In April, I'll be in Kansas also performing live with, with and for the kids. In the summertime, I'll be from as far away as San Antonio all the way up to Pennsylvania doing my Janet's Planet astronaut camps. And past that, we just launched 
Uh, our very own the JP Astrocast will soon finish our second episode. The first episode, since we've been talking a lot about the James Webb, is with Dr. John Grunsfeld, who was the astronaut who repaired Hubble, and now he's got a piece of the mission uh, with the James Webb. But you can find the JP Astrocast wherever you listen to podcasts. And how can people follow you through all this traveling and these new events? <laughs> so on Instagram, it's Janet's Planet Official. On Facebook and Twitter, it's Janet's Planet. On TikTok, it's Janet's Planet Official. Uh, so, and then YouTube and Vimeo are both Janet's Planet. So plenty of content out there, plenty of ways to connect. And if you happen to be listening today and you're like, oh, I wonder if she would ever come and talk to my students. I would. So you just have to reach out to me through my website and tell me, you know, the grade level you have and what subject. And I do my best to say yes as often as I can and come virtually, most, mostly, mostly virtually and come and talk to your kids, whether it's about the Artemis mission or Mars or the solar system. It'd be my pleasure to do that. Wonderful. We'll make sure the links are in the comments and uh, posted along with all the um, the publishing. Janet, it's always a humongous pleasure catching up with you. Looking forward when we can sit down, we can carry on for hours and hours. But until then, I wish you all the best and see you soon. See you soon. Let your mind revolve around this thought. The universe is always expanding. Let your always. mind do the same. And that's the view from Janet's planet. Janet's universe. Janet's universe. <laughs> Janet, thank you. <laughs> Bye, everybody.